Revelation 1, and if I can draw your attention, we're going to look at verses 17 and 18 this morning. And if you are turned there with me, would you stand out of respect for the Word of God as I read our portion of Scripture this morning? Revelation 1, verse 17, John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And Father, we humbly ask now just for the help of your spirit to continue now in this time of worship. That even as we have sang, Lord, as we sit and listen to your word, we pray your Holy Spirit would do in us what we cannot do for ourselves to give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word. We ask, Lord, prepare us and we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our minister and the one who would speak to us as we study this part of your word. And we ask you to bless your word now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what is the key to perhaps getting through or figuring out what's happening in your life? I think I might be able to honestly spare you a little bit of effort and maybe some time by just suggesting that a major key is seeing a little more of Jesus, is experiencing the hand of Jesus upon your life, and hearing the voice of the Lord speak to you. And this morning as we look at this passage together, I, I think that is revealed to us in our portion of Scripture. Now, let me just set the stage. The book of Revelation, the background here of where we're at, John the Apostle is the last living apostle at this time historically. And this is a time in the Roman Empire when there was great hostility and persecution against the church and towards Christianity. And the Apostle John himself has been a faithful follower of Jesus, honestly, from his teenage years. And at this time, he's in his late 90s. So he has faithfully served the Lord for many, many years. He's outlived all the other apostles. He's an aged man. And now because of his faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, one would think, maybe the way I think, at this stage in this faithful follower of Jesus' life, by this point in his late 90s, surely he should be enjoying some fancy excursion on some tropical island enjoying rest and refreshment from his faithful service to the Lord, embracing restful, relaxing days, free from all hassle and difficulty. Yet the reality is the exact opposite is what's true at this point in John's life. In fact, verse 9 of this same chapter tells us it's because of his faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Instead of enjoying some tropical island life, what John is experiencing is he has been exiled to the rocky isle of Patmos. And he has been banished or exiled there really as a prisoner for having done what's right in his life and for simply just honoring the Lord. 
And as the result of honoring the Lord, there he is suffering in various ways, living lonely and isolated. Now, let me say this. Would you agree it's hard and difficult enough in life when we find ourselves maybe enduring personal suffering, maybe a, a relationship struggle or separation or maybe some personal difficulties or things like isolation or loneliness or maybe you feel imprisoned in some situation it's hard enough enduring that kind of struggle when you can deduce hey i have to be honest some of this is the result of some wrong choices i've made some of this is just kind of the outcome of some prior mistakes in my past some errors i'm guilty of and that's kind of why i'm struggling and suffering but how much harder is it when that's your lot, personal struggle, suffering, loneliness, isolation, relationship separation, when the reality is that's just the result of you having been faithful to Jesus and honoring the word of God? How much harder is it to deal with that struggle? And perhaps some of you know that experience in your life this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you are actually going through some difficulties and struggles as the result of doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. As a result of choosing to honor the Lord and to honor the word of God and to follow Jesus. Well, listen, just like John in his day in the Roman Empire, if you have not noticed, we live in a world today where it is becoming very anti-Christian. We live in a world today when it is not popular to hold to the truth of God's word that we find in the scriptures. And as a result of that, I tell you, faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness to these things, honestly, may bring some struggle in your life. It may bring some suffering in different ways in your life. So what does Jesus do to help John the Apostle here? as he's enduring his struggle and his personal hardship. Well, we notice here that rather than instantly release John from the struggle or relieve him from the difficulties, verses 10 through 16 prior to where we're at this morning show that instead what Jesus does is he just gives John a personal, powerful revelation of himself. John experiences Jesus Christ in his powerful humanity and, 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 and in the midst of that in his glorified form in his resurrected life now John in his humanity experiences the resurrected glorified Christ and it seems that Jesus gives that to him to sustain him as he navigates his way through his own life difficulties and that's what our text is referring to this morning John's personal encounter with the risen living glorified Jesus Look with me again back in verse 17. This is what John's referring to, that encounter with the risen, glorified Jesus. John then says, verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So John begins and says, When I saw him, again, he's recounting the outcome of having experienced a revelation of Jesus in his own life personally. And I love that phrase there in verse 17. Those four words, When I saw him when i saw him you know, i can't help but to believe in one sense that that is the heart of jesus for everybody for every one of us that we would come to a point in our life where we could say i remember the day when i saw him i remember the day when i 
finally saw him. When I saw him for myself, perhaps it may not be in the exact same way the Apostle John experienced here, but that we'd still each have that personal spiritual encounter and experience with the Lord Jesus Christ who is alive today and as a result that we would see Jesus for ourselves, and that we would see Jesus for who he really is the son of God the savior of the world the Lord of glory that we would have that encounter in that powerful life-changing way Jesus when he was in the last hours with his disciples before his death and resurrection said this in John 14 19 he said to them a little while longer and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you will live also and then in John 16 Jesus said a little while and you will not see me and again in a little while you will see me because I go to the father so there Jesus is referring to his death and then his resurrection from the dead and then his ascension back into heaven from whence he first came and referring to how for a time the disciples they did see him with their physical eye while he was on this earth for 30 plus years in the flesh, living as a man, God among us, that they did see Jesus with a physical eye, but then he was going to die and they wouldn't see him anymore. But Jesus said, but then you will see me. And the disciples are probably, well, what is it? We're going to see you, not see you. What is this? Peekaboo, you know, hide and seek. You know, where, here you are, there you are. What is this? We're going to see you, not see you, see you. Jesus said, look, for a while you saw me with your physical eye, but I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise from the dead and I'm going to send back into the heavenlies from whence I came and yet you will still see me but now there'll be a transition and you will see me with the spiritual eye through the lens of faith is the way whereby you will see that I am very much alive even as I was when I walked on this earth that I'm the risen present living one and Jesus wants for every one of us I believe to see him for ourselves and to see him for who he is and would you agree certainly that happens on the day of a person's conversion on the day that you were saved and accepted Jesus Christ, that was the day, in a sense, you can say, like I could say, that was the day that I, I saw him. I saw him for myself. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. I see, I understand, I see Jesus now for myself, I see him for who he is, and that happens at salvation, but there may also be still other times, is there not, as Christians, when the Lord will still powerfully just reveal himself to you in a really special way, or maybe in a unique occasion in your own life, when he shows himself to you. And my question this morning would be this, has that happened in your life? Has that happened in your life? Perhaps you're a Christian. Do you remember that first day when you saw him? Do you remember that? The Bible says that Jesus told the church in Ephesus they had left their first love. He said, you, you forgot about that day when you first saw me. You remember how your heart leapt for me? And you were so excited and passionate. And, and we can remember that day when we first realized he was alive, he was real to us. And maybe you remember those occasions, maybe when the Lord just powerfully revealed himself to you in a unique and special way, maybe at a hard hour in your life, like John here, when you just needed to see and sense the presence of the Lord. And perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you hear and observe other people talk about their experience with Jesus. 
And maybe like me, before I became a Christian for years, I used to watch others who said that they knew Jesus and were walking with Jesus and experienced him, and, and I didn't quite get it. In fact, I kind of found myself almost saying, I don't see what they're so enthusiastic about. I don't see it. What, what? And, and to me, I looked on at other Christians who were saying they were experiencing Jesus, and, and I thought to myself, well, I, don't, I don't see why they're taking this following Jesus. I just don't see it. Why are they taking it so seriously? You know, you come into a church service and, and you see people even raise their hands. And you're thinking, well, I don't see, what are they doing? These people weird? What are they doing? They're singing? And, and now they're going like this in an empty room? What are they doing? I don't see it. But see, before you know Jesus Christ, of course, you don't see it. Because you haven't seen him for yourself yet. But I tell you this morning, look, if that experience hasn't happened to you, don't you want it to? And if you do, let me just suggest, ask him. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Look at Thomas. Thomas sincerely said, I won't believe it unless I see it for myself. And what did Jesus do? He said, oh, I have no problem with that. Look, this morning, if you sincerely want to see Jesus for yourself and experience him for yourself, I double dog dare you. Because I got a jacket on and it's Easter. <laughs> to ask him, Lord, if you're alive, if you sincerely want to see him, he will show himself to you. He'll reveal himself to you if you sincerely want to see him. And one thing is true, when that happens, it'll be a life-changing experience. It'll be a transforming experience. Well, look as a result of having had that encounter with Jesus, what happens? It says, verse 17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now that shows that when John had this experience, it did two things. First of all, you could say it drained him of himself. That's pretty obvious. And it also sort of drove him to a place of greater devotion towards Jesus. The first thing John says is, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. I fell at his feet. Now that picture is being drained of every ounce of self right there. Being drained of the human spirit, a, a powerful, humbling experience. That sort of, You could say it just sort of took the life out of him. That's what John's indicating here. Again, not physically, it didn't cause a, a heart attack, but spiritually and morally and emotionally, it produced just a deflation of John's human spirit. We say, for example, we have an experience to say, man, that just that took my breath away. This is the idea here. In a sense, when John had this encounter with Jesus, he says, I fell down like a dead man. It just took the breath out of me. It knocked the wind out of my sails. We can see from John's testimony, it stripped away from him things like pride. I'm not bowing down to somebody. It stripped away his self-will. I'm the captain of my own fate, the master of my soul. No one will tell me what to do with my life. It seemed like that went out the window here. It stripped away from him self-consciousness. Bow down. That's almost as weird as people raising their hands in church. All that went out the window. When he encountered the powerful, glorified, risen Jesus who's alive today, John was undone. He was undone and all the life and strength, everything in the human spirit was sort of just drained out of him. Things within all of us that are really alive and very strong in our human spirit. Things, as I said, like self-image and self-consciousness and, and, and self-interest. It seems those things were just driven out of him. He was just 
drained of all self when he encountered Jesus. And that's a glorious and a good thing for all of us. And secondly, you also see that it seems it drove him to a place of devotion towards Jesus. It drove him to a place of devotion because where is he at? He fell down at Jesus' feet. Now, when you're bowed at somebody's feet, to me, that implies submission, surrender, worship of somebody. And when a person truly sees and encounters Jesus as a result of that experience, it will indeed cause somebody to bow the knee of resistance that they prior had towards the Lord, maybe. It will indeed cause somebody to vacate the throne of their life. Again, whether in salvation initially or in occasions maybe later on when the Lord just reveals himself in a powerful way to us personally. For example, in salvation, Acts chapter 9, when Paul the Apostle had his encounter, his salvation experience where Jesus revealed himself and Paul surrendered his life after resisting Jesus very hard for a long time. Paul was the ultimate holdout. You think you're good this morning if you've been, I can go to church, I can hold out, I'm not giving in like the rest of them. You're not going to get me. (laughs) Well, Paul was... Paul was the master of being a holdout. And eventually Jesus lovingly just grinded him down and wore him out. And when Paul had his encounter with Jesus, it says that when he experienced Jesus, he fell to the ground trembling and astonished and said this, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, when somebody truly comes to that place like Paul, what was Paul doing? He came to that place where he was driven not only and, and, and drained of himself, but he came to a place of just devotion to Jesus when he said, okay, Lord, I'm done. I'm done. What do you want me to do? My life is yours. Lord, I surrender. I submit. I, I give in. I'm forsaking my stubborn self-interest, my efforts to rule and govern my life. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm all yours. I'm all in. Whatever you want from me, Lord, there's just that surrender and submission that happens in a true salvation experience when someone embraces Christ. And even as a follower of Jesus, here's John the Apostle. He is a follower of Jesus already. This isn't his conversion. He's a follower of Jesus already. And what happens? When Jesus powerfully reveals himself, look at the result of a powerful spiritual experience with the Lord. It's not arrogance. It's not let me write a book and make millions of dollars about it. It's humility It's a depth of surrender. It's a greater submission. And it's a compulsion, a compelling, I have got to worship him. He falls at his feet, driven to more devotedly worship the Lord. Now, interesting, think about it. When Jesus came in his first coming, when he was in the flesh, John the Apostle, who we're looking at here, if you remember, he was so comfortable with Jesus then. Remember at the, at the Last Supper, it says that he was leaning back against the chest of Jesus and they were having a little personal dialogue. And yet now, look at this, Jesus has risen back from the dead. He's in his glorified eternal form. And now, John says, when I saw him in his glorified majesty, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now John is overwhelmed by the glory and the authority and the power of Jesus. But look what Jesus does. Verse 17 goes on. It says, but he laid his right hand on me and spoke to me, saying, do not be afraid. So Jesus puts his powerful hand upon John to lovingly settle and assure him and to speak to him some helpful words. Notice John says, in this moment, I was overwhelmed, but he laid his hand on me. Again, keep in mind, he is legitimately overwhelmed and the right hand of Jesus 
Keep in mind, that right hand had all the power and the authority of heaven and earth behind it. And the right hand of Jesus touches John, but notice with me, as John experiences the hand of Jesus, the powerful hand of Jesus upon his life, it comes upon his life in a very loving way. It comes upon his life actually for a helpful purpose. Jesus did not put his hand on John's life to hurt him or to harm him in some way. It was in a loving way to help him, which is a great reminder. The primary reason that Jesus Christ wants to put his powerful hand upon my life and upon your life is not to harm you. It's not to hurt you. It's so that he might lovingly help you. I think often many times people have this image or idea in their mind of God or, or of Jesus where they have this concept of th that the heart of God, the heart of Jesus is, is just wait till I get my hand on you. I see what you've been doing all... You just wait till I get my hand on you. As if somehow he's going to you know, really give us what we deserve. Or wait till I get my... Wait till I get my hand... When I get my... I am going to ruin your life. You think it's bad. Now wait till I get my hand on your life. I'm going to make you really weird. I'm going to just ruin your life. And all the good purposes, I'm going to destroy them. So what do people do? They resist the Lord. And they run from the Lord. And they do everything they can to outrun Jesus and to try and keep away from the Lord because they genuinely believe if he gets his hand on me, uh-oh, what will happen? Am I going to get weird? Am I going to get odd? Is my life going to get all messed up? And so people run from the Lord and they resist the Lord and they, they do everything they can to try and keep the Lord from getting a hold of their life. Listen, I'll be very honest with you. It's true, Jesus wants to get his hand on you. He wants to get a hold of your life. But not to harm you in any way, but to lovingly use his power to help you. To help me to experience God's best for us. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Again, Jesus wants to get his hand upon our lives to help us, to bring us to a place of humility where his power may help lift us up into everything that God's blessing and plan has for our life as a follower of him. And what is the first thing Jesus says as he puts his hand upon John there? Look at it in verse 17. The first words of Jesus, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now why? Because clearly John was freaking out at this moment, if you didn't notice. When you fall down like dead under somebody's hand at their feet, you're feeling like, I'm terrified of what's going to happen next. So he was legitimately very, very concerned with realistic fear of what might happen to him next. But the wonderful thing is, Jesus lovingly assures him, as he puts his hand on his shoulder, you don't have to fear. I know you're terrified of what you think is about to happen next, but you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And I think, man, how beautiful to have heard that voice of Jesus directly to him to say, do not be afraid. You know, perhaps you are here this morning and maybe you're honestly very fearful of what's about to happen in your life. And you're really concerned about what's coming around the corner or what's going to happen next. And maybe there's something that you're legitimately facing where you find yourself utterly concerned and anxious and worried. And perhaps this morning, the love and risen Lord Jesus would want you to feel his hand upon your shoulder saying, 
Do not be afraid. I'm with you. My hand's on your shoulder, and, 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 and I'm going to help you through this. You don't have to be afraid. Don't worry. Don't fear. I'm with you. I'll stand with you. And Jesus here in our text goes on even to speak to John now some aspects of himself, his character, his nature to assure and to further comfort John. That's what happens as we go on. He declares some reasons why we don't have to be afraid in all of our lives. Notice he says to John next, I am, verse 17, the first and the last. So there Jesus declares that he is the eternally existent one. Again, the Bible tells us of Jehovah God in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. So in the Old Testament, God reveals himself, guess how? As the first and the last. Now here's Jesus Christ in the flesh. And what does he do? He takes the same title to himself when he says I am the first and the last oh that seems to indicate Jesus is God I am the first and the last I am God I am the eternally existent one it's a title that implies his eternal deity that he is the self-existent God who's been alive for all time that there has never been a time that Jesus did not exist he has no beginning and end because he is the beginning and the end the Bible says he is the eternally existent one. Everything has been made through him and for him and everything is flowing to him. Colossians 1 says that in Jesus all things are holding together. He's holding everything together. How many times did you think about breathing since you've been here this morning? Somebody's been helping you with that. Been working on keeping your heart beating? Somebody's been helping you with that. Jesus is holding everything together. The eternally existent one. Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, the point is this. Unlike us in our humanity, who had a day of creation when we were created, there has never been a time when Jesus did not exist. He's the eternally existent one. He is the one who... Before he was miraculously conceived in the virgin womb of Mary and entered into this world as a man in humanity, God taking flesh upon himself, before that day, he always existed for time and eternity. He was always together with the Father in heaven. His life is eternally existent. And the time when he came to this earth was just a brief moment, a snapshot in time when God chose to enter into this world to take the form of a man to live among us and Jesus came to reveal God to us so we could know what God is really like and he came to provide salvation from our sins and then Jesus, after stepping into this earth, rose from the dead and now has ascended back to the place from whence he came back into the eternal glory where he always has existed forever and ever. Remember, though Jesus came to this earth, that was not when his life began. Jesus said of himself, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He spans all of time and eternity. That's why he speaks of his life in the perpetual present tense by saying, I am the first and the last. Now you may ask, so what, what does that have to do with helping me with my fears? How does that help me that Jesus is the eternally existent one that's been around forever? There's never been a time when he hasn't exist. There never will be a time that he's eternal. How does that help me? Well, I'll tell you one way I can guarantee it helps us is unlike us as human beings who spend our whole life here trying to figure everything out 
as you get the next chapter and say, I, 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 never, I never went to this chapter before. And you face a problem or a situation or a difficulty and it's brand new for you. It's the first time ever for me. I'm very unfamiliar. How do you do this? Marriage. Ah! Oh, I find, I'm sorry. Father Lord, help me. I'm finally starting to get it. And then, you're pregnant? Ah! I lost a job and you're pregnant? Ah! And, and, and we, cancer and difficulty and child raising and dealing with issues and, and how am I going to sit with them at Easter dinner and not strangle them? Lord, how do I do this? I don't know how. I'm unfamiliar. Listen, we're unfamiliar with everything. We're trying to figure everything out. Guess what? Jesus is pretty experienced because he's been around forever. And the thing that you're facing, trying to figure out that I don't know how to do that makes us so anxious, Jesus says, listen, do you know how many people I've taken through this before? Do you know how many people from the beginning of creation have gone through exactly what you're going through and I helped them through it and my power enabled them and I worked and I gave them the... Wi- and, and I'm pretty experienced. This problem that you don't know what to do with, this situation that you don't know how to handle, I'm very familiar with it. I've been around for a little while. I've helped hundreds of people through this exact same situation. Now that makes me feel a lot more confident saying, okay, thank you, Lord, that you're alive and you're present and able to help me. And you're very experienced because you're the eternally existent one who has gone through this many times before already, even though it's the first time for me. He's familiar. And not only that, because he's the one who is and was and who is to come, that means that what you don't know of what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, guess what? He's already there. He's already there. So he's the greatest counselor that can help you because he already knows what's around the next corner before you get there. Jesus goes on to speak, verse 18, by saying to John, and I am he who lives. The translation in some of your Bibles there says, I am the living one. The emphasis there is Jesus is trying to emphasize, John, I'm alive. I'm alive. Just as much as you're alive, John, I am alive right now too. I'm the living one. I'm not a dead spiritual teacher. I'm not a dead religious guru. Again, what makes Jesus being alive, currently living so wonderful is we're not worshiping and following some dead religious figure from history that's lying in a grave. Hey, the reality is, it's not possible to have a relationship with or interact with somebody who's dead. Once somebody's dead, they can't help anymore. They can't talk to you. You can't talk to them. They can't assist you. That's what happens when physical death. But see, Jesus is alive, which means he can listen to you and he can speak to you. And he can help you. And the power of his risen life, being alive, makes all the difference in the world. So that when he says to you, do this, and you say, Lord, I don't know if I can do that. He says, I know. But because I'm alive, by my living power, I will help you and enable you to live the way that's pleasing to God. That's why it's good news that Jesus declared, I am he who lives. I'm alive. I'm the living one. And then he declares his victory of overcoming sin and death. He says, look, I am he who lives. But then he also says, and was dead, verse 18. I'm he who lives, but Jesus says, and I was dead. Now take notice, that phrase there, was dead, the language literally should read this way. I became dead. Jesus there is basically saying, I am he who lives, and I became dead. 
In other words, Jesus saying, I chose to experience the physical death process as a part of my earthly life. I willingly submitted myself to the death experience and he did it purposely. Consider this. For humanity, you and I, because of sin's exposure to this world, for us, death is something we suffer. For Jesus, who came as the sinless one as a man, death was something that Jesus selected. He didn't suffer death. He selected death. He chose death. For you and I, death is the dreaded interruption. It's the dreaded separation that everybody's afraid of. For Jesus, death was the great achievement. It was his accomplishment because he died for a set purpose. John 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said this, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself and I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. See, please hear, Jesus' death was purposeful. We're born to live. Jesus was born to die. He, he was born to live for a time sinlessly, perfectly, so that then he could die with a reason. That he could die in a way that his death would bring about salvation and forgiveness. That's why Jesus says in verse 17, I am he who lives, the living one, but that's why I became dead. I became dead for a reason because sin separates us from God. And the Bible is very clear. There's no difference. We all sin. And our sins and mistakes and failures that we all make thought, word, and deed make us offensive to a holy God. It causes separation between us and a holy, righteous God. If God's a just God, that, that makes sense. If we've sinned against him, as we all have, the Bible says, and it causes separation from God now, and ultimately, it will cause separation from God eternally when we die if nothing is done to resolve that. But the glorious news is whether you realize that spiritual reality that you are sinful and that hell is real, the Bible says that God so loved the world, Jesus declared, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Jesus went on to say, for God did not send his son into this world that the world might be condemned but that the world might be saved through him. See, the Bible says the reason Jesus came was to live sinlessly and then to die purposely. The Bible says he was crucified for our sins. He died for our sins. He died as our substitute. He took the punishment. He took all the wrath of God that's righteous and holy that I deserve, that we deserve. That's why he became dead in a purposeful way. He took death as the process whereby he could absorb the punishment for sin that we deserve. And Jesus physically died and then he was buried in a tomb for three days. But as we celebrate today, the power of the grave and death couldn't hold Jesus. Because of his authority, he exercised it over the things of death and the grave and defeated such to offer us eternal life. Look how verse 18 goes on. He says, I'm the one who's living. At a point in history, I became dead as a man. But verse 18, he says, but I am alive forevermore. And then Jesus gets a little charismatic and says, Amen. Amen. And I think it's worthy for him to say that Jesus rose back from the dead. He came alive from the grave. He came back from among the dead. Only person I know who had the power to do that. Jesus came back from the dead. He defeated the grave and the death process and the effect of sin, demonstrating God is fully satisfied 
with the completed work of Jesus Christ on behalf of humanity. And now Jesus lives again and possesses the power of an endless life that he can offer to all of us. And as a result of that, Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, as the perfect mediator and a living Savior, a risen Lord, we can come to God through Jesus Christ. And through his life, Jesus gives us access and offers to us everything that we need. Forgiveness of our sins. Because he paid for our sins. The church didn't pay for your sins. A pastor and a priest didn't pay for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. Jesus paid for your sins. So only Jesus can forgive your sins. And if you come to Jesus, Jesus as the Savior can say, yes, I will forgive your sin. I will remove all the guilt from your life. Jesus can give to us victory and help over the power of sin. Okay, great that I'm forgiven for my failures and the wrong things I've done. But Lord, I still struggle every day. I can't overcome this substance abuse. I can't overcome this bitterness, this unforgiveness. I can't overcome this struggle in my life. Jesus says, I know you can't. But I have the power, the same power that I rose from the grave and death with. And I can help you overcome the power of sin and live differently and transform and live in a way that God intended. And Jesus' life gives us fellowship and relationship with God. We come to God through Him, through the person of Jesus. That's how we have a relationship with God. And then He also gives to us the eternal life that He possesses. I'm alive forevermore, Jesus says. And guess what? The key to eternal life is receiving the eternal life that Jesus has that He offers to us as a gift. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John says that that eternal life is found in him. It's in Jesus. You receive his eternal life. That when you die, you can know that you'll be with him for eternal life. Lastly, verse 18, notice Jesus finishes this section by saying, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. So take note, lastly, Jesus holds the key to what I could think fairly say is probably one of the greatest fears in everybody's life. And a person who holds the keys, would you agree, is the person who has authority? Whether it's a business, whether it's a house, the the one who has the keys is the person who has authority. They have authority to grant access or denial to whoever they want. They hold the key. It's an indication of authority. And so the person who has the keys possesses control to grant access or denial to whomever he chooses. Well, here, look, because Jesus died for our sins and rose again, the Bible saying he has absolute authority over the place of the dead. Jesus says, I have the keys, nobody else. And you don't get your own key, Jesus. No, no. I, I have the key. I'm the one who holds the key, he says, to Hades and death. Now, the term Hades in Scripture is a place to refer to the, where the unbelieving dead suffer in present torment. Look, Because I love you, let me tell you this morning, in the love of God, hell is a real place. Jesus spoke of it more than anyone else, and he was God in the flesh who loves us more than anyone who died for us. The Bible speaks of hell as a place of outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of eternal, lasting, continuous torment. And and here we read this idea, Jesus saying, I have the keys of Hades and death. The idea there, listen, is not Jesus saying, I have the keys so I can lock you in. Jesus says, I have the keys to Hades and death 
because I want to let you out. Our sin and Satan automatically incarcerate us. I was going to hell whether I wanted to or not anyway. My destiny was sealed. I was locked in. I was on the way to eternal destruction. The reality is apart from Jesus, that's where I was going. But Jesus holds the keys to set us free, to liberate us, to let us as captives out of eternal death and destruction. Interesting, the only other place in the Bible the word keys appears is in Matthew chapter 16 where there Jesus declares he also possesses the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Boy, isn't that interesting. That Jesus Christ has authority over the keys and access and denial to both places, heaven and hell. And he alone determines our destination eternally. Truth be told, gang, it is not that complicated spiritually. It really is not. All that really matters is the question that if you go out to a restaurant today, they may ask you, which is this. Uh, what do you prefer? Smoking? or non-smoking. It's really not that complicated. There's not other options. And eternally, spiritually, reservations for after you die have to be made through Jesus. Through Jesus. Because he possesses the authority and the keys and that reservation must be made now before you die. It must be made now. Now's the acceptable time. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Hey, this morning, can I encourage you? You can stop trying to search for the hidden key to life. So many times this is we're searching for the hidden key to life, the hidden key to life. Again, can I simplify it, spare you some time? The hidden key to life, it's found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. That's the key to life. This morning, if you're here and you've walked away from Jesus and maybe you're not in right relationship with him, praise the Lord, you're back in church this morning. But if you've walked away from Jesus and you're not in right relationship with him today, can I tell you something? He wants to get his hand on you. He wants to get a hold of your life, but not to punish you for your little detour like a bad boy and a bad boy till I get my hand on you. Finally caught you. No, he doesn't want to get his hand on your life to punish you. He wants to get hold of your life to lovingly exercise his power to help you. To get you back on track. To bring you to a place of reality, of humility, to take away your pride, to remove your guilt. And to restore you back to the place where you belong in right relationship with him. To assure you that you don't have to be afraid of letting Jesus have his hand on your life. He doesn't want to wreck your life. He wants to do something wonderful with your life. And this morning is a great opportunity to say, Lord, I surrender. Or would you just take hold of my life again? Forgive me, wash me, cleanse out of me those things that have been... Key Lord, please, I just take hold of my life again. And if you're here this morning and you have never made a personal commitment to Jesus, you've never put your faith in him as Savior, look, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about being a religious, but we're talking about a relationship with a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again. We're talking about a relationship with God where you choose to follow Jesus. And if that's your desire this morning and you sense you have guilt and sin and you're not sure if you're right with God or you realize for the first time, wow, I, I, I'm not right with God. Yeah, I know, I've sinned like everybody else. Look, if you believe that this morning, understand the only thing that holds you back from heaven, the only thing that holds you back from a right relationship with God is one thing, 
It's sin. And notice I didn't say sins. I'm not talking about the multitude of all your sins. Because I got a truckload just like everybody else in this room. Jesus died for all your sins. Jesus died for the sin of the world. The only sin that will keep you out of heaven, the only sin that will cause you to be cast to hell, the only sin that will keep you from being in a right relationship with God is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. The sin of not believing upon Him. Not believing what the gospel says is true and putting your faith and trust in Jesus in such a way whereby you surrender to him as the Lord of your life. And hey, if that is you this morning, listen, you can resolve that. You can resolve that. The Bible simply says that God loves us, that Jesus made a way for us. And hear me, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can resolve that this morning.